Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. We need your help. We want to love your word. We want to grow in our confidence of what you say to us. So would you help me? Lord, I pray that whatever I've prepared to say that is not helpful, you would make it blow away. And that what is true and pleasing to you and for the upbuilding of your church, you would plant in our hearts so that you would receive the glory, God. Help us. We need your help. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you've got your Bible open still, you can open it up. How many of you have brackets around this text? Raise your hand. Brackets. How many of you have a note around this text? Anybody here who doesn't have this text in your Bible? Anybody? Almost no modern translations. King James is an exception. I don't know that you could call it a modern translation. Almost no modern translations have this passage in it without brackets or without a note. Why is that? John chapter 7 verse 53 through John chapter 8 verse 11 was almost certainly not in the gospel of John when John wrote it. Is anybody ready to run out? Don't run out. Don't run out. You can trust this book. And I want you to see, we're, we're, this, this sermon's going to be a little different because what we do is we work through the text. We love the Word of God. We work through it. But this morning's a little different because we're going to talk about how we got the Bibles that we have and how you can trust in it. Those brackets or that note around your text should not decrease your confidence in this book. Those brackets should increase your confidence in this book because this book has been poured over to search out what the originals really said more than any other book that's ever existed. I want you to see that. I want you to have confidence in this word. I want you to trust it more than you trust your best friend. I want you to trust this book more than you trust your husband or wife. And especially more than you trust yourself. I want you to trust this book. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about, first, really with the majority of our time, We're going to talk about how you and I got the New Testament that we have and how we can have confidence that what we read is actually what the authors of the New Testament intended for us to read. That's what we're going to talk about first. My hope is that you'll see you can trust this book more than any book in the world. That's my hope. And then to close, we'll briefly look at this story. So that's where we're going. Let's talk about how you got your Bible, how we got our Bibles. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's Paul saying, all scripture, it's God breathed. That's an amazing claim. If you've been around church for a while, you may be like, okay, I've heard that verse a million times. Anytime someone talks about the Bible, they bring up this verse. 
It's an amazing claim, isn't it? That this scripture is God-breathed. The words in this book come from God. You know any other book like that? There is no other book like that. This is the word of God. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Peter's explaining, okay, how did this work? He says, prophecy of scripture. That's this, scripture. He says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, men wrote. Right? If you, if you read your Bible and you read Paul, he sounds like Paul. And you read John, and John sounds different. He sounds like John. So men wrote it, but they were writing by the leading of the Spirit so that what they put down is what God wanted down. It's God-breathed. This book is God's word. It is true. I mean, the, the passage we read earlier, the word of God proves true. That's important. What if you came to this Bible and you thought, well, some of it's true, some of it's not? How are you going to make that decision? We need to know that this book is true. Titus 1-2 says, God does not lie. Oh, bless you, God. Can you imagine if our God lied? Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. God is a truth teller. It's in his nature, he tells the truth. Always. What a God we have. A truth-speaking God. So, if you want to know what's real, if you want to know what reality is, you and I need to know what God tells us about reality. We're like men and women who are dreaming. Okay, when you're, when you're dreaming, you're not living in reality. You might feel like you're flying. You might feel like you're falling. This happened to me a lot. You might think you're about to take a test that you didn't study for. You may be having a nightmare, and it may feel real. But it feeling real doesn't make it real, does it? When you wake up, that's reality. So you may be flying across the Alline Desert without a plane, and it might feel real. But in reality, you're just in bed. That's you and I without God's word. We're sleeping. I mean, there are all sorts of things that feel real to us, but they're not. We're sleepwalking through life. We feel like, oh, power and praise and money. That's real. That's what's going to make me happy. What's happening inside, I can trust that. That's real. We're asleep. Until God comes along and says, no, what's real is me. You want to talk about real? Heaven and hell are coming. They are bearing down on you. Sin, your offense against me, that's real. I am the treasure of the universe. That's real. We can't know that without the word of God. Your emotions won't tell you what's real. Social media is not going to tell you what's real. This book will, because God never lies. This is your entrance into reality. It is. Because this is God's universe. He sees things the way they are. And he tells us how they really are. And he never lies. So, 
We care what the Bible says because it's God speaking to us with authority. So we really care what it says. But that also means that we deeply care that the Bible we have is truly what God intended for us to read. Do you see the connection there? There's some people who say, well, this is God's word. We love it more than anything. I don't want to hear about how we got it. I don't care. Whatever is put in front of me, that's all I want. No, no, no. If you believe this is God speaking to us, it means you deeply care that what's in here is what the original authors wanted to be in there. And we do. Christians do care. And we work hard to make sure that we know. Now, in the Gospel of John, so this Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to leave you guys, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to remind you of what I've said, and he's going to teach you all things. So that's John 14, 26. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And he did. The Holy Spirit did. These men, the apostles and their co-workers, wrote down the 27 books of the New Testament that you have. They wrote to churches. Okay, that's, that's how you got your Bible. They wrote, they didn't have typewriters. They didn't have email. They wrote probably on papyrus, which is like a reed that you unfold. And they sent it to churches. And guess what? When those churches got those letters, they didn't throw them away. They said, the apostles just wrote us a letter. This is an official spokesperson of Jesus Christ. And we have it. And they made copies. And they sent them to other churches to read. Now, those original letters, we don't have anymore. Okay? And before you get freaked out, we don't have the original writings of Shakespeare. Do you know that? He lived 400 years ago. Copies were made of these originals. Lots of copies. And copies were made of those copies. So much so that the New Testament has more copies in the original Greek than any other ancient book by far. By far. So we have over 5,600 Greek manuscripts, which is what the New Testament was written in. There are copies of the original, which are only decades, some of which are only decades after the originals were written. And I want to give you a little perspective, okay? So you can, you can look up more comparisons if you want. You can Google this. Do you know who Plato is? I don't mean Play-Doh, like the stuff you squish. Play-Doh is the most famous ancient Greek thinker. Do you know who Julius Caesar is? Yes. Plato and Julius Caesar wrote things down. Now, we have about 250 copies of what Plato and Julius Caesar wrote. That's a decent amount. The earliest copy we have of Plato's writing, so after he wrote, the earliest copy we have is a thousand years after he wrote. The earliest copy we have of Julius Caesar is a thousand years after he wrote. Okay? Compare that with the New Testament. 5,600 copies. 
in the original Greek, some of which are decades after they were written. We, we don't question whether Plato wrote what he wrote. We don't question whether Julius Caesar wrote what he wrote. We have so much better evidence in the New Testament. I mentioned Shakespeare earlier. You guys know Shakespeare. Sorry, this is another Western example. But he's the most famous English writer ever. He wrote 37 plays, lots of other poems. We don't have a single original play. We're confident in what Shakespeare said because we have copies. Did you know that New Testament scholars, so these are believers and unbelievers, Christians and non-Christians, say we have way more confidence in what the New Testament says than we have in what Shakespeare said, who only wrote 400 years ago. That's amazing. Now, the way these copies were made were, were by hand. You know what a printing press is? It's like where you can set type and you can print onto a page and you can print another page. Put some ink on it, print another page. Put some ink on it, print another page. That was not invented until the 1400s. 1400 years after Christ. So people had to make copies by hand. These people were called scribes. They would take their copies and they would follow along and write down. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the cramp you would get copying down the New Testament? But they did. Now, sometimes someone making a copy would make a mistake. Can you imagine making a mistake if you were copying the New Testament? Yeah. You look at one line, you repeat a word. You skip over something, it happens. Well, when that happens, when someone makes a mistake and that copy gets passed along and someone starts copying that copy, they're going to repeat the mistake that was made before. Sometimes a scribe would add something in. Now, this was very rare because they believed they were, they were writing down the word of God. But occasionally they would, or they would add a small section of text that they didn't know what to do with. But we can know when they did that, when they made a mistake or when they made an addition because we have so many copies. Follow along here. I want you to think. You're going to have to think about this. The fact that there are differences in the copies we have does not mean we cannot know what the original said. Follow me. You're going to have to think. Because there are differences in the manuscripts, and there are so many manuscripts, some people, especially Muslims, will say, oh, there's so many mistakes in all these copies. These copies are everywhere. So you can't know what the original said. Your Bible is corrupted. Anybody ever heard that? I want you to see that the opposite is actually true. The number of copies we have means there will be more mistakes. But because we have so many copies, we know exactly what are mistakes. So follow along. Here's an example. It's a, it's a very simple example. But I want you to see that more copies with more mistakes actually helps you know the original. Okay, follow this. I'm at home, and I'm going to go to the store, and I write a note to my wife. Now let's imagine for some strange reason the note is destroyed. But my kids made copies. So my wife has now 
two copies of this note I made. All right? Just two. One says, Dear Caroline, I've gone to the Bacala to buy some food. I love you, John. The second copy says, Dear Caroline, I've gone to the Bacala to buy some food. I miss you, John. Can you know what my original said? No. It's 50-50. Did I say I love you or did I say I miss you? Now, I'm going to add three more copies, okay? And because I'm adding three more copies, I'm going to add two more mistakes. You ready? Here we go. Dear Caroline, I've gone to the Bacala to buy some food. I love you, John. Dear Caroline, I've gone to the Bacala to buy some food. I miss you, John. Okay? Here's another mistake. Dear Caroline, I've gone to the Sakala to buy some food. I love you, John. Okay? Number four. Dear Mary, I've gone to the Bacala to buy some food. I love you, John. Number five. Dear Caroline, I've gone to the Bacala to buy some food. I love you, John. Okay. Do you know what my original said? You can know without a doubt. You can know. Now, at first glance, when, when someone says, well, there are more copies, which means there are more mistakes, you say, well, that makes sense. We can't trust what the Bible says. The opposite is true. The more copies you have, of course there are going to be more mistakes. But you know because of all those copies comparing them what the true is. Do you see that? What if one of those copies was way older than the other? Would that give it more weight? It absolutely would. Now, people who study the New Testament manuscripts, so the copies, they can look at different parts of the world and they can say, okay, in this part of the world, the copies say something a little different than in this part of the world or in this part of the world. But because we have so many, we can go back and we can say, oh, this looks like where the mistake started. Because before this time, they all said the same thing. Okay? Which means we know, we can know with almost, almost without a shadow of a doubt what the original authors of the Bible said. I mean, this, this book, and I'm going to say this many times, is more scrutinized and inspected than any book in the world. And the number of copies we have means, yeah, there will be more mistakes, but we can know with more certainty what it says. So, what happened to John chapter 7, verse 53 through 811? The big thing that happened is the King James version of the Bible. Do you guys know what the King James is? It's a really good translation. I don't want you to feel like your King James Version is not a good translation. When the King James was translated into English a very long time ago, they used really good manuscripts, really good copies, but not the oldest Greek manuscripts. So, when you read the King James, the manuscripts they use had this story in there. But, here's the problem. Later on, scholars started to notice this story does not appear in any of the earliest Greek manuscripts. And when it does start to appear, sometimes it's in John 8, 
Sometimes it's in John chapter 21. Sometimes it's in the gospel of Luke. So they started to wonder, okay, was this story inserted in? On top of that, there are 14 words that show up in these 12 verses that don't appear anywhere else in John. So John has 14 new vocabulary words in just these 12 verses that don't show up anywhere else in John. Which means this is most likely not original to John. We just look at the manuscripts and we say, okay, it looks like this story was inserted. It's not what John originally wrote. Now, the story of the adulterous woman may have actually happened. I mean, there's good reason to think that this event actually happened. And the scribes who are making copies, they had this story and they didn't know what to do with it. They're figuring out, okay, this event happened. Where should we put it? Where would it work in the flow? John chapter 8? Maybe it would work there. Maybe it would work in John chapter 21. Maybe it would work in the gospel of Luke. There's nothing in this story that changes any Christian doctrine or any teaching of our faith. We can learn from it, but we don't treat it like scripture because it was not originally in John. Rather than making you feel like you can't trust your Bible, you see those brackets and that note? When you see those, rather than making you feel, I can't trust this book, you should think these brackets are here because this book has been verified for its truthfulness. This book has been poured over so that I might have confidence this is what the original authors wrote. You hold in your hand God's word. You can be confident in what it says. This book is a marvel. The reason we're talking about that this this morning is because I want you to be confident. I don't want you, because this is going to happen. Someone's going to say, do you know you can't trust the New Testament? So many copies, lots of mistakes. You have no idea what the original says. Or did you know that most scholars... Christian scholars, not unbelievers, don't think that John 7:53 through 8, 1, 11 is in the Bible, you can have confidence to say, yes, I know. And it only increases my conviction that we have the word of God as it was originally given to us. The, the verse we read when the Snymans, well, after the Snymans left, 2 Samuel 22, 31 through 32, The word of the Lord proves true. You can live on this book. You can live on it. The Lord will be your shield and he will be your refuge. If you live as though this book is telling you what reality is, he'll be your shield and your refuge. He will help you. Now, what should we do with this story? What should we do with it? On the one hand, this event probably happened. But on the other hand, we shouldn't act like it's on the same level as Scripture. So how can we be encouraged by it? How can we be encouraged by a passage like that? We can be encouraged through this story by noticing what it tells us about Jesus and then seeing where the Bible confirms that those things about Jesus are true. So that's what we're going to do real quick. 
We're going to look at this passage and see how the Bible confirms what this passage is telling us about Jesus. So here's the first thing that we see in this passage that the scripture agrees with. He's wise and he knows our hearts. Notice, the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman to Jesus they say was caught in the act of adultery. And they want Jesus to say, kill her. Execute her. Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22 say that the adulterer, so the man, and the adulteress, the woman, should both be executed if they're caught. Something's not right, though. Something smells funny. Where's the man? They said they caught her in the act. Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22 say you're supposed to bring the man and the woman. Where's the man? Something's going on here. It's a trap. John tells us, well, whoever wrote this tells us it's a trap. We see that. Here's the dilemma. Here's the trap. The Romans ruled over the Jews, which meant the Jews were not allowed to execute anybody. They couldn't carry out capital punishment. This is why later when they want to kill Jesus, what do they do? They take him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler, because he's the only one with authority to kill someone. So what they're hoping is, okay, Jesus is going to agree with the law of Moses. He's going to say this woman shall be killed. We'll kill her. And then we'll go to the Romans and tell them that Jesus is the one executing people. Trap. Or... If Jesus says, no, 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 come on, guys, let's not kill this woman, they'll immediately run off to the other Jews and says, this man, he doesn't believe the law of Moses. Do you see the trap? This is a trap, and they think it's a pretty good one. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. He's wise. Instead, he turns it on them. And he says, okay, Go for it. Stoner. If, and only if, none of you are guilty. Now, in the law of Moses, you didn't have to be sinless in order to carry out the judgment of execution. So Jesus is not saying only sinless people can carry out justice. But, Jesus knows hearts. I think Jesus is seeing into these men's hearts. They are adulterous men who do not care about God's law. They don't care about God's law. Where's the man? They don't care about this woman. That's obvious. All they care about is killing this innocent man, Jesus. That's all they care about. In Romans 2, Paul who was a Jew, is speaking to Jewish people who don't trust in Jesus. Listen to what he says to them. He says, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So Paul is looking at the Jewish people and he's saying, we talk a big game. But we are full of thieves and adulterers. These men are adulterous lawbreakers. And here they are trying to judge this woman for adultery. And let me ask you a question, you personally. How do you want to be judged? Do you want to be judged based on what you deserve? If you know your heart at all, that's a quick no. Or do you want to be judged on the basis of mercy? These men know that they deserve death for their own lives. And Jesus is asking them, are you men willing to stand under the same judgment that you're putting this woman under? If so, throw the first stone. Do you judge other people? It's a good reflection question. Do you judge other people by a standard that you yourself cannot stand under? Oh, we do this, don't we? We do this on the road, driving around. How dare you cut in front of me? Death! We cut people off all the time. We judge people by a standard that we ourselves can't stand under. You need grace. That's what you need. You and I need mercy from God. Before you condemn others, look to yourself first and then run to Jesus for mercy, not for what you deserve. Jesus can see your heart. It's an open book. He can read every little detail and it doesn't take him long. (laughs) He knows everything. You can't fool him. Now, we think we can fool God because we're so used to fooling other people. You can fool me. It's easy to fool me. You can fool the other people in this room. You can't fool Jesus. He sees into your heart perfectly. Don't try to pretend to Jesus that you are better than you are. Acknowledge your sin to him. He's wise and he knows our hearts. That's something the scripture confirms about Jesus that we also see in this passage. So here's the second thing we see in this story that we know is true from the rest of scripture. Jesus is gentle and merciful. These men all leave. They know they're hypocrites. But Jesus is sinless. Jesus says, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. Guess what? There was actually someone there who was sinless. It was him. And he's the judge of the world. Think about this. This woman was probably terrified that these men are rushing her through the streets in order to stone her. You know what's scarier than that? Standing before the sinless judge of the universe. And here she is alone with him. Does he blast her to hell? We know she was guilty because Jesus says, go and sin no more. She's not pleading. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Jesus knows that she sinned. She was an adulteress. But Jesus does not condemn her because he is merciful. 
And that's true of anyone you're ever going to meet, as long as they are alive in this world. If they come to Jesus, he will be merciful. He's able to be merciful. Do you know Jesus can forgive sins? The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's Mark 2.10. Jesus says in Matthew 11:28 through 29, oh, I hope you know these verses because they're so good. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you need rest? You need soul rest? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am, now we're talking about the judge, the sinless judge of the universe. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus can be merciful because... He is going to pay for sins himself on the cross. We're going to talk about this pretty much every week you're here. Jesus can be merciful and just because he paid on the cross. If you're wondering, I don't get why Christians keep talking about the death of Jesus. It's because when he's on the cross, he's paying the punishment that you and I deserve for what we've done, which means he is free to give mercy to whoever he wants to give mercy to. And here's his promise. If you come to him. Now I'm talking to people who don't know Jesus, who know they're sinners. And I'm talking to Christians who have sinned again and again. You know what happens when you do that? You feel like, I don't think I can come to Jesus anymore. He's going to cast me out. If you come to him, he is gentle and he will receive you. That's who our Jesus is. He is gentle and merciful. Here's the third thing we see in the story. It's the last thing that we're going to talk about that we know is true from the scripture. Jesus wants us to share his holiness. Notice Jesus does not tell the woman, I don't condemn you. Your sin's not a big deal. Keep doing whatever you want. When I was a kid, that's how I read this story. And that's why I liked it. Because Jesus doesn't think sin's a big deal. Well, that's not what the text says. He tells her to go and sin no more. That's in step with the way Jesus treats people in the rest of the scripture. In this book, John 5, he tells the man who was paralyzed for 38 years after he heals him, he says, go and sin no more. Jesus forgives us. Not so that we would have a clean slate to see how we can do the next time. Can we do better the next time? He doesn't forgive us so that we can just go off and keep living for ourselves. He forgives us so that we might share in the life that he has. That's what he's doing. It's why he forgives. He wants to forgive your sins and give you the, the new life that comes through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot live inside an unforgiven person. So he forgives your sins and sends the Spirit to live inside of you so that you can now live for his glory. You can share his holiness. Don't 
think holiness is boring. It's not. Holiness is the only truly satisfying, exciting, exhilarating, joy-filled existence there is. God knows it, and he wants to put it inside of you. That's what he's after when he forgives us of our sins, that we would share his life. So, this passage does not appear to be original to John. We don't place it on the same level of authority as the scripture. But the fact that we know that it wasn't a part of John should actually give you a ton of confidence in the Bible that you have. And even though it's not scripture, we do see a picture of Jesus that is consistent with scripture. He's wise, he knows our hearts, he's gentle and merciful, and he wants us to share his holiness. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us this book. We are not left in the dark. You have spoken to us, and your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you. Thank you, oh God, for the way that you've preserved the Bible for us. that we can know what you intended through the original authors. Thank you, God. We have an embarrassment of riches in the copies we have of your word. I pray that you would make us confident men and women in what you say, not just so that we can win an argument with an unbeliever, but so that we can sink our roots deep down in this word because your word proves true. Would you give us life as we read it and treasure it? Thank you, Jesus, that you are forgiving, gentle, merciful, wise. You're our king. Help us to share your holiness. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.